What's the number one memorized verse in the Bible? Shout it with me. The number one memorized verse known by more people than anyone else. It's... Man, you are smart. What's the number one psalm known by people? It is Psalm... What is the number one used passage in bulletins and or wedding announcements? It is... You got it. The funny thing is, Paul wasn't thinking about weddings. Now, honestly, use it again. Because here's my theory. If your marriage practices love this way, you are going to enjoy your life forever. I mean, think about it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You do that one thing and your marriage is going to be amazing. But if you do all of these... So though it's not written for marriages, it's such a beautiful application. But let's move it back where it was first given to us. It was given to a church like ours. Not quite as good as our church, but it's, um, let's just be honest. They're subpar compared to us. But they were gifted. Oh man, they were insanely gifted. These people had all kinds of gifts, spiritual gifts, and they were using them. And one of the things that Paul notices is sometimes, especially in what we call the sign gifts, those spectacular things, people can begin to read their press clippings and believe their press clippings. And the next thing you know, they're running around, man, with their nose stuck up in the air, and they just think pretty highly of themselves. And it's to that context that Paul writes to this church And he tells them, I want to show you the most excellent way. In other words, I want to tell you what matters most. You're going to have a thousand decisions to make in your life every week. And you got to have a way of prioritizing them. You have to have a way of kind of delineating what's important and what matters most. Now, why is that important? Why must we learn how to love each other? I think number one is because the context of this is if you learn how to love people, it keeps you from becoming self-absorbed. And that's what these folks were doing. They were pretty high on themselves. Sometimes you've run into people that way. They, they thought that they kind of hung the moon. And what Paul is telling them is, is if you learn how to love people and you place everything that includes ourselves and our gifting as a secondary matter, then the reality is you're gonna, your life is going to be significant. But if you don't, it's going to be a zero. Sometimes people think, well, I'm, I have a servant's heart. That's great. So does a terrorist bomber. I mean, can you think of a person that sacrifices more than an individual who flies a plane into some tower? But honestly, why do they do that? They're doing it for themselves. Because somebody convinced them that if you take your life, if you become a kamikaze, if you kill yourself, you will what? Be rewarded in heaven and all of the different things. So the ultimate issue is they may look sacrificial, but they are really some of the most self-absorbed individuals in the world. 
Love keeps you from becoming that way. There was a pastor that was in a church and he was preaching to people and he was telling them that their sins would lead them to hell if they hadn't trusted Christ. And he would talk about that. Your sins are going to lead you to hell if you don't trust in Christ. He didn't last that long. He got let go and they hired another guy. But the strange thing is he kind of said the same thing. He would talk to them about their sins, that if they didn't take care of that in the blood of Christ, it would lead them to hell. One day, somebody was there that had listened to both pastors and asked somebody, Hey, why did the first guy get fired when the second guy really is preaching the same thing? And somebody had a good insight. When the first guy told us that we are sinners headed to hell, it seemed like he liked it. When the second guy said, we're headed to hell apart from Christ, it broke his heart. My good friend, Dr. Luther, who's now in heaven, I'll never forget, probably one of the wisest things he told me. People listen to you a lot better if they know you love them. That's what Paul's point is. If you learn how to love people, it keeps you from becoming self-absorbed, making it about yourself. Somehow thinking that the other person is at fault when maybe it's you. Over the years, tragically, I've periodically had a husband or a wife come in. And they're going to sit there in my office and one of them is going to make a statement. I've heard it way too many times. I don't love you now. In fact, I've never really loved you. They think that somehow we're dumb and naive and believe that what they're really saying, because this is what they really want to say, is that I've never loved you and frankly, you're unlovable. But the fact is, when a person makes that statement, what they're really telling me is a condemning remark of themselves. If you can tell me you've never loved this person, you've committed your life to them, you've raised kids with them, but you've never really loved them, I would say, how can you tell me that you follow Christ? Love is not about a feeling. It's about what? Putting the needs of another person ahead of yourself. And I think that's why Paul said, we have to learn how to love each other. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to become one of those individuals that is just absolutely enamored with yourself. Secondly, and I think the reason he makes that statement, the love is the most excellent way is because if that is true, and I believe that it is, then it helps you make a ton of decisions on a given day as to what matters most. Probably one of the most significant mentors in my life, Dr. Robinson, who's now in heaven, He was president at Denver and then later uh, at Gordon-Conwell where I studied. I remember him telling me one day, he goes, being the president of a seminary is like being stampeded by a herd of ducks. And he goes, every day I come to the office and everyone wants my attention. And I remember one day he told me about a conversation he had with his predecessor and he asked him and said, how on earth do you delineate of all the things that you have to deal with? How do you prioritize them and decide which ones you do? Love does that for you. 
Love sifts through all of the critical things that you have to do and gives you the ability to find out what is authentic, what is genuine, and what is counterfeit. Because there's a lot of decisions that you have to make. And those things may be motivated by a ton of different things, but at the end of the day, if you're not motivated by love, Paul says your life is a zero. The story is told of a $50 bill that made its way around to a number of businesses. One day, an individual walked into a grocery store and took a $50 bill and laid it down and bought a bunch of groceries. The grocer who owned the store needed some gas in the company vehicle, so he reached into the till, grabbed that $50 bill, wrote an IOU in there just to remind him that he took it, and he took that $50 bill, he went down to the gas station, and he filled his tank up. Well, didn't really fill it, just, you know, got enough to get back home. The gas station attendant was writing a little letter to his daughter who was at Oregon State and thought, you know, this would be kind of cool. And so he owns the gas station. So he reached into the till, grabbed that $50 and decided that I'm going to send her just a little encouraging note. And he tells her how much he loves her and says, here's $50. Use it as you wish. She opens the card and she's like, oh, dad, I love you. She went down to the bookstore. She bought a book. Sadly, only one book, 50 bucks. The bookstore at OSU took that $50 and it put it together with all of the other money for the day and went down to OSU Credit Union and they made a deposit. And there was this lady down at the OSU Credit Union who actually has a particular keen eye for counterfeit money and she's going through all of the money and she comes to this $50 and realizes this is counterfeit. It's not real money. Somebody's been lying. She took it out, tried to trace back where it was. Now that $50 had been all over the valley. That $50 bought groceries. That $50 bought gas. That $50 blessed a little girl. That $50 bought a book. But at the end of the day, that $50 was a lie. And that's Paul's point. You can do a lot You can serve people. You can look like the most sacrificial individual in the world. You can look like a person people just are in awe of. But one day you and I are going to stand before God and he, the scripture says, is going to sift through all of our life and he is going to come to grips with the fact that a lot of times the things that motivated you was not your love for people. In fact, sometimes people are motivated by revenge and it looks really sacrificial on the outside. Sometimes people are motivated by a wound that happened in their life years ago and it drives them to excel. But like that $50 bill that was counterfeit, it had its life, it ran its course. But Paul says, when you stand before God, he's going to know your heart. And that's why it's important for you and I to get it. Why must we learn how to love each other? Because Paul says this, if you don't, your life is a zero. Oh, you'll buy groceries. You might even write a few encouraging notes. But one day I'm going to stand before God. And he's going to sift through my life. 
They're going to take me on a journey back there. And I'm not talking about he's going to kick me out of heaven. But the scripture says that I will stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And it's going to be the blood of Christ that gets me into that door. Nothing I have done. There's not a thing I've done in this world that's going to buy me a second in heaven. But when I get there, all of my life is going to be evaluated by what? The motivation of my heart. Did I love people? Did I love them? Or was I in it for other motives? And that's why Paul says, dear friends, dear gifted friends, I want to show you the most excellent way. And if the motive of your heart is not love, then you're going to stand before God and he's going to say your life was a counterfeit. Number of a few years ago, I should say, I, I went through this whole text, the chapter thirteen, and broke it down. So today, I don't want to do that. I want to look at two broad categories that Paul moves us into in answering this question: What does love look like? And I believe that he breaks it into kind of two different sections. One is love has a way that it responds to people. There's a certain way when you love people that you react to them, you respond to them. They do something and you have a certain reaction. The other side of it is love has a certain act, a choice of the way it sees people and how it invests in people. And I want to take all of the descriptors of love that Paul gives us and if you will, break it into those two different categories. And the first one is that love responds to people in a way that I will tell you, or I'll suggest that love gives people this place or this capacity to grow. Paul tells him, he says, love is patient. It's kind. It's long-suffering. doesn't get easily angered. If you think about all of those, all of those are reactions to other people. You have no idea if you're patient until you have children. And then you realize these little sweethearts drive me nuts. Some of you had no idea that you were an impatient person until you got your license. And then you start driving and you realize, good grief, the entire world is made up of idiots. I had a friend, I didn't know this about him until we were driving together one day and he was driving and, and I was just sitting there in the passenger seat kind of enjoying my time. And all of a sudden I noticed this guy talks to everyone when he drives. And it was not, I love you, I bless you. Would you get out of the way, you idiot? Who gave you a driver's license? There's a guy standing there. You better not walk out in front of me. I'll kill you and hit you without thinking about it. And I'm like, whoa, what got into you? Give that guy a car and he becomes what? A gorilla. (laughs) The fact is, is patience is the ability to idle down, to govern yourself to somebody else's pace. That's what patience is. Restraining your anger is the ability to react to another person or to a situation in a way where you suspend your goals and your desires in that moment for the sake of another person. Patience is a restraining of one's desires. 
Anger is a suppression of one's anger or emotions. When what? You don't get your way. Paul says when you love people, that's how you're going to act. Patience and restraint of anger is going to create a room of grace. And in that room of grace, it's going to allow people to move at their own pace, to move in a way and to get things that at times you think they should have gotten a long time ago. But without it, they don't grow. And how many people, because of our impatience, have been set aside have not realized their full potential because simply you didn't have the ability to love them. Why should we be patient? Well, number one is because God's patient with you. You're alive. He hasn't wiped you out. He hasn't at times taken your sniveling and whining and said, you know what? I'll talk to you about your sniveling and whining. I'm gonna put you out in a desert for a few days until you're thankful. The reality is God hasn't treated you the way you deserve. I know a lot of people say, well, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. That's true. It's, it's just a phrase, but the fact is all of us in relation to God are better than we deserve. We all deserve what? A discipline from God. But the fact is God, the scripture says, is patient. He's long suffering. And the reason why Paul, I think, is telling them that when you love people, I want you to reflect and look like the heart of God. And part of the heart of God is his amazing ability to place himself, though he's perfect and he's holy, he's willing to be patient with you and to not snuff you out when you don't get it for the 15th time. Not only that... The reason why I think we should be patient is because impatience always makes you upset. You can t- oftentimes tell a person that doesn't have a lot of patience because they're mad all the time. They're mad at the world. They're mad at everybody. Nobody works fast enough. Nobody responds fast enough. They're not treated with enough respect. It, it can happen. It's easy to get that way. I, I, I struggled with it on Friday. Somebody stole my iPad. And I was like, oh, I want to just curse this individual. And so thankfully, I ordered another iPad. And the guy said he delivered it. No, he didn't. He probably threw it in a snowbank for all I know. And I find myself going, wow, I want it now. I mean, if you can't deliver my iPad in 24 hours, what kind of business are you? The reality is all of us. But what does impatience get me? It gets me angry. It gets me snarky. I start attacking people. And maybe a third reason why patience is a good thing is because it mirrors all of the great saints that we see in the scripture. Stephen was immensely patient. David I find this one amazing. David was anointed king by God and he didn't get the palace for 10 years. Saul was running his little rebellious trick out there and David, against all of the counsel of his friends and his warriors and his, those who invested in his life and David said, I'm not taking the palace until God gives it to me. They said, God gave it to you, you anointed. No, 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 Saul is still there and I'm not gonna kill him to get the seat. Barnabas, probably one of my heroes. For nine years, he tutored Paul, 
writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. For nine years, Barnabas came alongside that young man and taught him. And when Paul was probably a little impatient and at times maybe even a little angry, and it's like, I'm ready to teach, Barnabas said, no, we're not quite ready. And he discipled him and poured his life into him. Then they took a missionary trip. The two of them went on. Barnabas began to give way and it started off Barnabas and Saul and then it flipped and it was now Saul who became Paul and he was really the instructor and he kind of took the lead and one day they decided to take John Mark it was a cousin to Barnabas and John Mark was going to come along the trip and John Mark was one of those kind of kids that thought before he or you know acted before he thought and he's like I want to go on the mission trip absolutely that sounds heroic and he got on the mission trip and just a little ways into the mission trip he missed his mom and he said I want to go home Paul was fit to be tied he was furious and he shamed John Mark and then he had a fit and the scripture says there was a heated debate between Paul and Barnabas and their friendship couldn't sustain the debate and they split I'm quite certain that Paul felt vindicated. I'm serving God and it takes a commitment to serve God. Barnabas loved John Mark. And he believed that if somebody would invest a little bit more in him, this young man could turn out to be something special. My perspective is Paul's phenomenal. I'll take one-tenth of this man's faith. But I do think he had a sense of impatience at times with people. And it got him into a heated fight with Barnabas. And I can only imagine that down the road, when Paul was alone and he was in prison, and lo and behold, who did he request? Send me John Mark, would you? Now, I think that is a demonstration of Paul's immense humility. That a person a few years ago, he was done with. Where did he learn that? He learned the art of patience from his friend Barnabas. He understood that it is in a room of grace where a person can become something that today maybe they're not. It's in that room of grace called patience and long suffering and kindness where a person matures, where a person gets discipled. But my friends, if they don't have somebody patiently working with them, they get discarded and sent down the road. And it's the person who learns to respond with that patience that oftentimes I think is one of the greatest leaders and makes some of the greatest leaders. Restraint, patience, it creates a room of grace where people mature. That's why Paul said, you got to get this thing right called love. Because if you love people, some of the people that the world will discard, some of the people that others would write off, become some of the most faithful servants. One of my favorite stories from history of this is Abraham Lincoln. 
When Abraham Lincoln was running for office, he had an enemy. Edwin Stanton was his arch enemy. Stanton would say of Lincoln, one need not go to a zoo to see a gorilla. We have a gorilla. The original gorilla is Abraham Lincoln. Stanton would say of Lincoln things like he is a low, cunning clown. He hated Lincoln. And Stanton mocked him all the time. At every chance he got, he would make fun of this guy. Well, strange thing happened. Lincoln became president. Lincoln needed a secretary of war. He needed somebody that could trust, somebody that could organize. And of all things, Lincoln selected Stanton to be his secretary of war against the counsel of virtually every close advisor. Abraham, do you not understand this man has mocked you your entire life? Do you remember he said you're a low, cunning gorilla? You remember that? Finally, one of his advisors asked him, why on earth would you elect and put Stanton in your cabinet as your secretary of war? And Lincoln responded, because he's the best. Patience. It creates a room of grace where people can become. It's not a license to get away with murder. It's not an indifference to a stubborn heart. It's a willingness to idle yourself back and to move at a pace of another person that they might become what God intended them to be. When Lincoln lay in state, it is recorded that Stanton stood over him and made this statement. There lies the greatest ruler of men that the world has ever seen. You realize he would have never been able to make that statement if Lincoln would have listened to his advisors. I'm not saying you can rescue every person, and I'm not saying that if you're patient, every person is going to make it. I'm just saying that if you're impatient, you're going to lose a lot of people that could have been much more significant had you loved them. So Paul says, we've got to get this right. Love creates a space. It's called patience. It's called kindness. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It believes the best in people. Secondly, Paul tells us that love desires the best for people. It's how we choose to act towards them. And he goes on and he starts talking about various things and he says, love hopes. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects. This is not reacting to a person. This is making a decision. It it looks out. It covers the backside of a person. It, It protects them when people are talking behind their back. It defends them. It always trusts. That's not naivety. It just simply says, until you choose to break it, I'm going to trust you. 
Remember years ago, my kids asked me that we were watching some ad and it had this tracker on your automobile that you'd be able to always tell where your kids. And I remember one of my sons asked me, he said, dad, would you ever put that on the car? And I said, no, because the nature of our relationship is trust. And if you break it, something severe gets suffered, but I won't originate the relationship based upon mistrust. So that's love. It's like, if you break trust, then we have a problem. But I'm not going to begin my relationship. I'm not going to create my relationship. I'm not going to set my relationships up with the belief that I don't trust you. Love doesn't do that. It's not naive. It just believes the best in people. Love trusts. It protects. It always hopes And it always perseveres. What does love do? It desires the best for people. And it believes the best for people. Oftentimes when they can't see it themselves. It's a kindness. It's a desire that a person would excel and grow and mature. Just like what Barnabas believed for John Mark. Just like what Nathan believed for David. Just like what Paul believed for Timothy and Titus. There was a study done of 760 Muslims who had converted from Islam to Christianity. Now you and I have probably heard the same stories. That there's a lot of revelation and kind of visions where people are having images of Christ. And that's true. And, and I rejoice in that. But in this study, they asked these Muslims, what was it that was most significant in moving you from this position of believing in Islam to Christianity. And of the 760, the number one response was simply what? The kindness and love of Christians that took an interest in them. It's a relationship. It's a neighbor that would walk over. It's a meal that they would serve. It's an evening that they would spend with them. It's the prayers that believe you can be something, you can give your life. And and, and it's a belief in that individual that one day this barrier can become something that through faith they can overcome. It's the same thing that moved in the story of the prodigal son, actually the dad. Now, if you've ever been a parent of a prodigal, you know that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's what the Bible says. And so every day for this father to get up in the morning before he had breakfast and to look out on the horizon and say, is this the day that my son comes home? And every night after dinner, and he's put all of the animals away and he's tended to everything. And just before the sun sets, he goes out and he looks at the horizon But he doesn't look at the setting sun. I mean, after you've seen a thousand suns set, you know, it's not, it probably doesn't drive you out there. You know what drove him out there to look at his porch every day? Was the thought that this might be the day. This might be the day that my son comes home. This might be the day that he comes to his senses. That's love. Love perseveres. Love overcomes the disappointment of your heart. And love drives you to move out there every day and to long, might this be the day? And if you've ever had somebody you love in your family, like your child, your husband, your wife, 
or maybe even your parents. Paul says, you don't give up on them. You don't quit on them. It's, it's not, well, I've gone out. I'm going to give you till July 1st. And if you don't repent before July 1st, I'm done with you. Love doesn't have term limits. It perseveres. It keeps going. John Orberg writes it this way. He said, hope is the fuel that the human heart runs on. A car crash or a diving accident can paralyze the body, but the death of hope paralyzes the spirit. If you've ever seen somebody who's had hope stripped out of them, uh, they, they, they become an addict. An addict of a drug, an addict of a behavior, an addict at work. Hope deferred can make the heart sick, but love says there's the possibility of another day. Hope is the fuel that runs in our life. Hope is what prompts a young man and a woman, John says, to stand before a preacher and to promise, I do, even though they have no guarantees. And I in particular like this one. Hope is the fuel that that same couple lives on many years later after broken promises and broken hearts that they will give their promises another day. That's hope. That's what Paul says. Love not only responds with patience and the, and the room of grace, but it creates a vision and a hope and a belief that this person that you love can have a better day. It's Barnabas's commitment to John Mark. It's Barnabas's commitment to Paul. Nine years of discipleship. It's Paul's commitment to Timothy. Timothy wanted to resign every other weekend. He was forever submitting his resignation papers to, to Paul. Paul, I'm tired of Ephesus. I want to live somewhere else. I don't want to pastor the church. I'm not gifted. I'm too young. I'm too anything. And Paul continued to come back to him. And I'm convinced that the only reason why Timothy died as a pastor It's because Paul was patient with him. He'd learned the lesson of his friend Barnabas. Hope is why human beings keep bringing children into this fallen world. I'm increasingly hearing couples, nations, where the birth rate is plummeting. Why? Because women don't want to give birth? No, because couples are losing hope. And they're looking at this world and they're thinking, man, it's scary. I don't want to bring kids into this world. But love hopes. And it believes that I can raise children. And this is not arrogance. This is not naivety. It believes that I can raise children and bring them up into this world. It's a dark, mucky world. And they're probably going to get scrapes and bruises. But you can still raise godly children in this day. You can still raise kids who have grit and toughness and kindness in their heart. You can do that. Hope gives you that belief. John goes on to say, hope is why there are hospitals and universities. Hope is why there are therapists and consultants. And no parent would ever agonize over a child without hope that that child might live a better, nobler, happier life than they did. That's why Paul says you got to get this right. You do. Because if you don't get love right, if you live on the wave of your gifts, 
You're never going to believe the best in people that need you. Our marriages and our church need love. It's not because we have bad marriages. But your spouse needs to know, I love you. Not that I think you're beautiful and attractive. That's fine. But no, I love you. I believe in you. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to choose to react in a way that is different than the world. I'm going to be patient with you when you don't get it. And I'm going to need you to be patient with me when I don't get it. And I'm going to choose to not blow off the handle and use, well, it's my personality or it's my whatever. No, it's not. It's your choice to not govern your anger. But love says, I will do it. I'll do it because I love you. Our church needs it. Our church is phenomenal. I brag about you all the time. I do. Ask any of my fellow pastors in this city, they're forever hoping I die so that they can apply. But the fact is, there are people in this church that need you to love them. There are people who lead you in worship that need to be told, what a great job, not why did you choose that song, you idiot. They need you to come alongside them and say thanks. There are teachers who teach your kids and there are those who listen to Awana and there are coaches who coach and, and man, they're out there cheering and they're, they, I watched, I think I told you this, I, I watched a coach a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the kids, when they scored, they were slightly excited. This coach, I thought he went up to the third heaven, came back down. I've never seen a coach so delighted in the success of his kids. As much as I loved that coach, he needs to know that you love him. And if he makes a bad call, he needs your patience. And if he doesn't play your child enough because your child is going to be the next Michael Jordan or Damian Lillard, and and that coach has yet to see the light, that coach needs your patience. And he needs your kindness. And that world out there that you and I live live in, it's just stupid. It's a world where they steal your iPads and drop your new iPad in a snowbank and tell you they delivered it. And my UPS driver needs my patience. And right now I don't want to give it to him. I want to give him my peace of mind. But I have read this text before I've had the opportunity to interact with him. And I'm glad I did. Because this world needs me to not throw my fit and love them. Paul says if you took a piece of paper, if you took that piece of paper and you just drew a zero right there in the middle of that piece of paper, he'd said, my friends, that's your life if you don't get love. You will stand before God and he will say, boy, you really did a a really amazing job. You are an intensely gifted person. But I'm telling you what, when I looked at your heart, it wasn't motivated by love for people. You had every motive in the world other than that. That's why Paul says we have to get that right. Why? Because of all the things that matter, love matters most. 
And if a church doesn't get that, I don't care how gifted you are at whatever you do. If you don't love people, and by the way, loving people that are nice to you and kind to you and agree with you, that's easy. Paul says love people that disagree with you. Ones that don't say hi to you. But if you take those zeros and you put a one in front of it, you have 10. You add another zero, you have 100. Add another zero, you're at 1,000. And Paul says that's what happens to your life when you love people. It takes a life that is a zero and starts multiplying in ways that you can never imagine. Paul and Barnabas had a heated discussion. They fought so much that they separated their team and would never work together again. But Barnabas looked at John Mark and said, you know what? You have a lot of quit in you. You overpromise and you underperform. But I think, young man, you're gifted. And I think if somebody pours his life into you, you're going to become an incredible tool for the kingdom of God. And he was. And Paul one day said, hey, would you send John Mark? The guy I quit on. Barnabas didn't. He loved him. And today, I need him. Imagine your life and the impact you can make if you just simply say, God, help me respond and act in love on this day.